Okay, welcome back. We're here looking at the essay, Variations on the Standard Treatment. It's a long one. It extends all the way to page 300. So we're going to take this step by step. And I think if we arrive at maybe 10 moves here, 8 to 10 moves, I think we'll have the essay pretty well in hand. So this is a mid-50s project. It begins on page 267 and has kind of a long wind-up, in my opinion. And then on page 275, the rubber starts to hit the road. The question of what it means to speak, he says there in the first, I mean, second full paragraph. He's starting to raise the question of speech, of communication, and what that would also involve would be listening, interpreting, and how exactly we're bound up in speech, our senses of self bound up in speech, wrapped up in speech, symptomatically often. So on 275, he starts developing and unfurling a theory of speech. And it would be some kind of speech that would proceed by free association. The speech he's most interested in is going to be analytic discourse, the discourse that occurs in therapy. And so there towards the bottom of 275, you hear him summarizing this discourse. This discourse must be pursued first without stopping. That means just say it as much as you can, keep going, all this stuff. And second, without holding anything back. So here we have a non-stop and non-omission policy. So keep talking and don't hold anything back and it's going to be fine. And he says this is important because holding back is something the subject might be inclined to do. This is an addition that Bruce makes, the translator of this passage, to let you know and almost to anticipate what's coming next, which is this notion of resistance. The way that instead of saying everything and anything that comes to mind, we tend to hold back. Or when we're about to say something sensitive, we tend to stammer or stutter or slip symptomatically. So that without holding back is very important here. And why might we hold back? Out of a concern for coherence, because we don't want to sound foolish. We don't want to sound incoherent. We like our speech to sound coherent. Or internal rationality, but also out of the shame regarding its ad hominem thrust or its unacceptability in polite society. So basically we're afraid we're going to offend somebody, say something inappropriate. And so the speech that occurs in therapy, in the analytic experience, is one that is supposed to be truthful. It's supposed to be candid, nonstop, and inclusive of everything and anything. And yet at the same time, it's one of those places where we see uh, dilemmas, where we see barriers, where we see hesitations and mores like that would produce shame, rules about appropriate society and what's the kind thing to say and so forth. Then there at the bottom of 275, about four lines up, free association, very key here. But note how he puts this here. It's not exactly free because it is still contained by which the subject's speech is maintained in syntactic form that articulates it in discourse in the language employed as understood by the analyst. So language is still this container and language with all of its rules, syntax, grammar, diction, and the like. 
language is still the container in which the analyzand or the patient freely associates. So free association is always going to be in this contained environment known as language, bound by certain rules. And Lacan is just kind of flagging this here. The reason why he's flagging it is because he wants to note that the symbolic is always there. The symbolic here includes language, rules, expectations, norms, all the things that you might deem uh, polite society. Those norms are written into the symbolic. Language is also there. So there's this container known as society with language and rules and expectations in which this discourse of analytic experience is supposed to unfold and unfold in a way that is helpful. This is where everything starts with this notion of speech. Now, Lacan then on page 4, 276, turns to this notion of the listener. Here we're talking about the analyst, the therapist. They occupy the position of the listener. Lacan thinks this is fundamental. This is absolutely key. A listener, also an interpreter, who participates in the production of truth. And this is pretty important. We're going to come back to this time and again, but Lacan believes that we are constituted in speech and that speech is always addressed and that the constituting of an individual is always first and foremost a social function. In other words, it happens in the context of others. Others come first. Others come before selves. Selves, in fact, are productions effect structures of interactions with others. That'll be a theme in this essay and across his writing. Here we're talking about the analyst, and he believes the analyst plays an important part in the construction of the subject who's speaking and the identification of that subject, and eventually the treatment of that subject. So let's hold all of that in mind. In the middle of 276, Lacan says, now let's pause for a second and let's back up and get to this universal root of analytic experience, namely its introduction into the experience of speech. So here is the first and foremost element, speech. Now what do we know about speech? Spoken discourse is addressed to others. Even when you're alone, it is still addressed. It presumes an auditor, an addressee, someone to whom is spoken and someone that could hear. Even if you don't respond to someone speaking to you, that is still kind of a response. It serves and communicates lots of things. If I ask you how you're doing and you don't reply, I'm going to assume all kinds of things. I'm going to interpret that in many different ways. So speech is central here. And then on page 277, Lacan again wants to zero in on the kind of speech we're talking about in free association, when someone says anything and everything in a nonstop fashion. In these moments, a certain material is produced. On 277, the first full paragraph. Yet the very term material has since denoted the fact that the set of phenomena in which we had hitherto learned to find the symptoms secret. And this is what Lacan is trying to do, is to recall this original form of psychoanalysis where we looked for the symptom's secret, the symptom as a signifier of some issue. 
and we listened for certain types of expressions, certain ways of communicating, which Lacan here identifies as psychoanalytic semantics, an immense domain annexed by Freud's genius to man's knowledge that warrants the true title of psychoanalytic semantics. Now, what's included in this very special form of language use, of symbolic action, that psychoanalysis should be concerned with, according to Freud and carried forward here with Lacan? Dreams, bungled actions, slips of the tongue, memory disturbance, whims of thought, association, and so on. All of these specific forms of communicative practice, according to Lacan, have fallen out of favor in analytic technique. That for him is a big problem. The slips, the stutters, the stammers that were the bedrock of analytic communicative practice, the kind of stuff that the analyst was listening for, have fallen out of favor. But each of these psychoanalytic semantics would function according to language as a linguistic apparatus. Dreams are heavily symbolic. They are shot through with signifiers. Bungled actions. These are all things outlined in the early 20th century by Freud, known as parapraxies as they come across in the English translation. They gave it a Latin, fancy Latin uh, term um, from the Greek here um, to suggest something that would go alongside and sometimes even against like your daily practice. That's what para means in the Greek as it gets carried forward. It doesn't just mean alongside, it also means against. And here a praxis would be a way of living, um, a way of moving through the world. So let's pause there with this notion of speech and the certain types of speech that psychoanalysis is interested in. Okay, we were just talking about speech here in variations on the standard treatment. We were on page 277 and identifying a certain type of speech or speaking pattern that the analyst would be looking for in analytic experience. And that would be the types of stutters and stammers, what we now popularly know as Freudian slips. Now the question becomes, what do you do with that? If this is a communicative practice that you are attending, attending to, what might come of this in therapy? Prior to this, quote, turning point, Lacan says there in the second full paragraph on page 277. Turning point in quotation marks here because Lacan thinks it's a wrong turn. And the wrong turn he is talking about here is the way that analytic technique in the mid-50s had turned away from, at least in his view, um, the original psychoanalytic semantics that he discusses above. Prior to this so-called turning point, it was by deciphering such material, and here we're talking about Freudian slips, that the subject was able to remember his history along with the outlines of the conflict that determined his symptoms. Remembering here is very important. Elsewhere, Lacan talks about this as psychoanalytic anamnesis, Greek word for remembering or recalling or recollecting. This weird form of remembering the past. And this is one of the great wagers that Freud comes up with and that Lacan really wants to hone, hone in on here um, in the mid-50s, is that people who are struggling with their past 
are usually struggling with the past that they would like to let go of and forget, but that won't let go of them and constantly causes them to remember it. So here we're talking about um, someone being done with the past, but the past not being done with them. And when you live a life like this, the past is constantly determining your present. It's controlling your life. Past mistakes, slips, feelings of guilt, all these types of things keep coming up. That is the past controlling your present. In psychoanalysis, by very carefully trying to learn to listen to how you speak, you're able to start hearing secret affinities, strange wormholes between the present in which you're communicating and the past that has been over-determining your action. Now, this is different because what it effectively does is it transforms your past into your history. This would be the goal. So that the past no longer over-determines your present, but has been re-subjectivized, that has been reclaimed, owned in a new way, in a way that allows you to come to terms with your past. And that's a very good way to put this. In psychoanalysis, you learn to come to terms with your past. And in coming to terms with it, reclaim it transform it into your history. Not something that you still are, but something that you were in order to become something different. And that's very important here. The ultimate horizon here would be um, someone who has enough compassion towards themselves to recognize that even the worst things they've done in their past are still part and parcel of what has made them into the person they are today which is a person that they kind of like. So they wouldn't change anything about the past because if they change something about the past, it would change who they are today. And that would presume that they're not content with who they are today. Doesn't mean you can't live a life that has some regrets in it. But if you live a life strictly of regret, you might benefit from this technique is Lacan's wager. And he's getting it straight from Freud. It was by deciphering weird slips of the tongue that you could remember your past and transform it into your history. And with that, the outlines of the conflict that determined your symptoms up to that point. And the value to be granted in technique to the elimination of symptoms was based on how well the order in his history was restored and the gaps in it were filled. So the idea here is that the standard or the test to see if it was working, if the therapy was working, was that you would be able to start telling a pretty coherent story about where you came from, about why you are the way you are today. This history would be restored and the gaps would be filled. The observed elimination of symptoms demonstrated a dynamic in which the unconscious was defined as a clearly con constituting subject. Now this is important here. The unconscious here is that part of your past that you had never come to terms with prior to therapy. And it was a constituting subject because it was an active agent. The unconscious here was the thing that was moving you in certain directions, determining your conduct, constituting you, determining who you were. So here we see the unconscious as an active agent, a constituting agent, one that constitutes who you are. And the idea was that by addressing the symptoms, 
and marching them back to their primal scenes or their causes, you could somehow come to terms with them in ways that would cause the symptoms to decline. You wouldn't stutter or stammer as much when you tried to say the word mom or dad or whatever the case may be. The unconscious was defined as a clearly constituting subject in this case, since it sustained symptoms in their meaning before it was revealed. And we experienced the unconscious directly, recognizing it in the ruse of disturbances in which the repressed compromises with the censorship. So this would be the censorship of the superego, which you can look up, combined with that of the ego to some extent, and the unconscious coming up with compromises that would allow for certain expressions to pop up at certain times, like the weird stuff that happens in your dream, but not so weird that it would cause you to wake up from the dream, resulting in what we call a nightmare. Now we're getting close to this wrong turn that Lacan says current analytic technique has taken. Notice, if then the analyst gave the subject the solution to his symptom, but the symptom persisted, it was because the subject resisted recognizing its meaning. Analysts thus concluded that it was this resistance that must above all be analyzed. Now this is crucial here. So somebody shows up and every time they start to talk about their mom, they stammer, mom, 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 something like this. Okay, this is clearly a slip of some kind, a stammer, a hesitation where there's some issue there. And through analysis, through careful listening to oneself and having the help and guidance of an analyst, you might come to terms with some previous issues you have with your mom, which make it difficult for you to talk about her. That's what the stammer tells the analyst, is that this is somebody who is struggling to talk about someone in their life. A slight hesitation, a correction, a stammer, usually is a red flag that says, oh, there's some conflict, some past issue there that needs to be addressed. Now, if the analyst were to show up and say, hey, I notice every time you say mother, you stammer. You use other M words, but you don't stutter on those. You stutter on mother. I would guess there's something there. Now, if somebody were to say that to you, you would resist it. You might say, are you tripping? No, there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with my past. My mother doesn't have anything to do with this. How dare you, sir? You see what I'm saying? That is resistance. And the way that happens is you are here resisting the meaning of the symptom that the analyst would present to you. And so then the question becomes, where's this resistance coming from? Why are you resisting this so intensely? And what happens at this moment, Lacan says, is that analytic technique is tempted to now focus on the resistance, less on the symptoms, less on the unconscious that is constituting the subject at the level of their symptoms, and more on the resistance to cure that we see. What is up with this resistance? Analysts thus conclude that resistance must above all be analyzed. The focus now shifts to resistance, but notice how this turn unfolds. 277, getting closer to the bottom. Note that this conclusion still puts its faith in interpretation, that great, important production of truth that occurs through listening interpretation. But it was the particular aspect of the subject 
in which people sought this resistance that led to the approaching deviation. Here we're talking about this wrong turn. So here it is. The particular aspect of the subject that people sought when they were looking at resistance. People looked for resistance in a certain part of the subject, and that part Lacan's going to identify as the ego. The target here being ego psychology, which you can also look up. It was the particular aspect of the subject known as the ego, not the unconscious, but the ego, not the part of you that is unconscious, but the part of you that is acutely aware, fancies itself aware, the part of you that you usually assign with the term me, the ego here, your sense of self. This particular aspect of the subject is where people started to look for resistance, and this led to the wrong turn that Lacan is talking about here. For it is clear that this notion tends to take the subject to be constituted in his discourse. Here, the discourse of the ego. Notice the emphasis on the ED here, the constituted subject, versus above we have the constituting subject that is the unconscious. This is going to become important. It's a subtle move, but very significant here. Should the deviation go on to seek his resistance outside of this discourse, it will be irremediable. No one will come back to the question of the constituting function of interpretation regarding its failure. So Lacan is trying to separate these two notions of something that is constituted in a discourse, by a discourse, and something that is the constituting the constitutive agent, the constituting subject of that discourse. There's the person who's speaking, and there is what is spoken. And he's trying to separate these two and suggest that there's been some kind of weird confusion in current analytic technique where the constitutive or constituting agent, the unconscious, has been mistaken as the constituted effect of the ego's speech. And the ego has been mistaken as the constituting agent of the patient's speech here at the level of resistance, when in fact what we know, according to Lacan, is that the ego is, on the contrary, the effect, a constituted element that follows out of and flows from the subject's speech. The ego is an effect structure, not the origin not the agential force behind an utterance. The unconscious is the agential force behind the utterance. And the ego is something that is effected. It's an effect, a reaction to, you might even say, what comes out. So this is going to be important as we go through here. Again, at the end of 277, Lacan really summarizes what he's talking about here. We're looking at the verbalization of chains of speech in which the subject constitutes his history that word constitutes again. The next turn here is to this ego that is presumed to be the resistor. And that's where we're going to go on page 278. Here we find ourselves on page 278, variations on the standard treatment. Who is resisting? Lacan begins here in the second full paragraph. 
Who is resisting? The ego, answered the first doctrine, including therein the personal subject, no doubt, but solely from the undiscriminating angle of its dynamics. It is here that the new orientation and technique runs headlong at a lure. A lure here would be like a false bit of food, a false um, uh, opportunity. And this is, Lacan thinks, the major trip, where the turn towards resistance provokes a mistaken identity as to the source and most important aspect of the subject involved in this resistance, namely the ego. Lacan just doesn't buy it. And he suggests that it's a lure. The ego is a lure, a red herring, if you will. It answers the question in the same way, neglecting the fact that it puts the blame on an ego whose meaning Freud, its oracle, has just changed. So even Freud, the so-called origin of ego-resistant theory, Lacan's pointing out he doesn't even buy the ego as this solid agential force. No, resistance is not the privilege of the ego alone, Lacan continues, building on Freud, but also of the id and the superego. So to even purport that you could isolate an ego as the source of resistance, Lacan says, is contrary to where you claim you're reading that in Freud. Because according to Freud, resistance is something that the id, superego, and ego participate in. So he's saying even at the level of Freud, this association with the ego, your sense of self, your conscious sense of who you are, your me self, um, doesn't line up. Now, we're moving on here. We're coming back to this issue of who, if not the ego, should we focus on? Nothing else in his last conceptualization, here he's talking about Freud still, will henceforth be truly understood, as can be seen in the fact that the authors of this, quote, turning point wave are still at the stage of examining the death instinct from every angle and even getting bogged down regarding what the subject must properly identify with, the analyst's ego or his superego, without making a single worthwhile step forward, multiplying ever more instead an irresistible misconception. So here he's just really wanting to flag that this is an error. This is a mistake. This turn towards the ego and the ego alone around the issue of resistance is an error, a misstep. Now Lacan wants to try and introduce the corrective, a corrective we were just talking about. But now here on 278, toward the bottom of the page, we see a paragraph by reversing. This is where he's gonna try and spell it out. By reversing the correct choice that determines which subject is welcomed in speech, the symptoms constituting subject namely the unconscious, is treated as if he were constituted, like material, as they say. In other words, the unconscious is mistaken as something that is produced at the level of the symptom, produced by the symptom, when in fact it is the constituting agent of the symptom. While the ego, as constituted as it may be in resistance, Notice ego here as constituted, not constituting, becomes the subject upon whom the analyst henceforth calls the constituting agency. So this is Lacan is saying is this reversal. There's been a confusion here, a misrecognition. And it basically works like this. The ego 
is oftentimes mistaken as the agent of one's symptomatic speech, the speaker, if you will, when it's actually the effect of that speech. It's a formation that emerges as a reaction to, and at best a response to, those utterances. And the unconscious is oftentimes mistaken as the effect or the constituted element here, when in fact, it's actually the agent. So the unconscious, the parts of us of which we are unaware, conflicts with the, our parents, conflicts in the past, previous traumas, all those things that we really don't like to think about, all those things that have been repressed, that dwell in the unconscious, these are things that now become agential forces. They're the speakers. They're the ones getting their word in. And the symptomatic speech that pops up when the unconscious speaks produces certain effects. The ego is one of these effects that pops up and is nourished by, in a, even if in a resistive way, to those symptoms. And that's where we're going to head next. Okay, welcome back. We're talking about this wrong turn known as ego psychology, according to Lacan. We were at the bottom of page 278. <clears throat> and there at the bottom, Lacan refers to it as an ideology that is quite simply bankrupt. This privileging of the ego as the object of analytic inquiry over the unconscious. At the top of 279, Lacan wants to attach this ideology to Anna Freud, the ego and its mechanisms of defense. And there on 279, he's going to indict her and her followers as best he can. Again, there toward the middle of the page, a little past the middle, but the semantic use Anna Freud makes of the ego, etc., etc., etc. Notice how he describes this at the end of that paragraph. In the thereafter received deviation, this wrong turn in psychoanalytic theory and technique, the ego is truly the objectified subject whose defense mechanisms constitute resistance. So he's really wanting to <clears throat> hammer on this point that we should not center our interest on the ego and the ego alone as though it were this major agential force, because really it's just a reactive structure. <clears throat> He keeps going along these lines into the 280s, and then on 283 gives us the claim again, echoing what he said on page 278. I'm about three quarters, two thirds of the way down the page in the paragraph that says, where is the end of analysis as far as the ego is concerned? Note this, how can we know this if we misrecognize the ego's function in the very action of psychoanalysis? So what he's suggesting here is not only is the ego not the place to look, but that even when people focus on the ego, they're not even understanding the ego correctly. Around page 285, Lacan starts to offer a corrective, starts to offer a more, well, let's just say Lacanian sense of the ego. If you were to ask him at this point, he'd say, I'm just telling you what Freud said. I'm returning to the meaning of Freud. 
Note here on 285, about three quarters of the way down. Here again, we see an indictment of ego psychology. In the early stage of psychoanalysis, the study of the ego never constituted a subject of aversion, as Anna Freud would have it in the above cited passage. Rather, it is since people came up with the idea of promoting it in analysis that this study truly favors the subversion of psychoanalysis. So here he's raising the stakes. To follow the path of ego psychology, to focus on the ego, not only are you taking the bait, this lure, a lure that you don't understand, but in so doing, you are subverting the entire tradition of psychoanalytic inquiry. Subversion of psychoanalysis. So he's raising the stakes here. And then on page 286, he wants to talk us through what he believes to be the proper understanding of the ego. He starts initially by talking about aggressiveness. There in the second full paragraph on 286. The rending of the subject from himself. A rending whose primordial moment comes when the sight of the other's image, apprehended by him as a unified whole, anticipates his sense that he lacks motor coordination. This image retroactively structuring his lack of this lack of motor coordination in images of fragmentation. Okay, there's a lot right here. What Lacan is basically describing here is something called schema L from earlier in his work and a stage that's very popular among Lacanians called the mirror stage. I've lectured elsewhere on this, so I won't spend too much time focusing on it, but I will walk you through the basic elements that he's talking about here. The first three elements that we want to focus on are the fragmented body, the specular image, and the ego that is produced out of their interaction. And let's talk this through one thing at a time. Lacan says, famously, <clears throat> that you can take a baby and put it in front of a mirror. And oftentimes you have to hold that baby up. You have to prop that baby up. This would be a fourth element, the hand that holds the baby up, the big other that props the baby up, the symbolic order that allows them to have that experience to begin with. This could be the parent in the background. But you put a baby in front of a mirror and it sees this other baby in the mirror. It does not initially recognize that baby as a reflection of itself. It sees it as an other baby. That's the specular image. The specular image is what the child sees when they look in the mirror. They don't see themselves initially. Initially, what they see is another baby. And it's not just another baby, it's a better baby. Because the child can see the baby's arms, the head, the eyes that work back and forth. This baby has its stuff together. This baby is coordinated. This baby is coherent. This baby is just the opposite of what it feels like to actually be a baby. To be a baby is to feel uncoordinated, discombobulated, lacking in motor skills. You can't sit up on your own, much less be in front of a mirror on your own. You're completely helpless, a discombobulated mess as a baby. But you look in the mirror and you see this other baby that looks to be a coherent image, looks to be a strong baby, and maybe one that's better than you, that could compete better for resources. In other words, this other baby is a threat. 
So oftentimes you'll see when you put a kid up in front of a mirror that they'll lean forward and put their mouth on the mirror. And the parent in the background will say, oh, are you kissing your new friend? Nah, that's not it at all. The baby is trying to take swipes at this thing, trying to annihilate it, hitting the mirror like this. It's an attack, but it's a very difficult one because every time the baby puts its mouth to the mirror to try and bite and annihilate the other baby, the other baby reacts perfectly and puts its mouth to the mirror. Every hit at the baby in the mirror produces a defensive hit back, obviously because it's just a reflection of the actual baby. What emerges here is some tension between a fragmented body, a body that is experienced as discombobulated at the level of the infant in front of the mirror, and their perception, imaginary perception, of another baby that's not fragmented, that's at the level of the speculum in the mirror, the specular image. Now, initially, this is an aggressive relationship. That's how this is flowing out of the topic of aggressiveness. As time goes on, though, the child learns to identify with this other baby in a kind of like, if you can't beat him, join him way initially. And then eventually starts having fun in front of the mirror. So as time goes on, the child, the fragmented baby who feels like they don't have anything going, learns to identify, look up to, admire, glom onto, if you will, the specular image. Okay, the third element, the ego, is the product of this identification. The ego is a mashup, if you will, of feelings of inadequacy and fragmentation and discombobulation and hopes and aspirations, ideals of coherence, of strength, of integrity. So you have this mashup of a fragmented body, which is the baby in front of the mirror, and the specular image, which is this coherent, um, admirable, ideal image. And those get mashed up and become the ego. The ego is the effect of this mashup between the fragmented body and the image in the mirror. Now this, Lacan thinks, is crucial to understanding how the ego operates. Because first and foremost, what you see here is the ego is a product of some operation. It is an effect. Reading it one more time. Whose primordial moment comes when the sight of the other's image, apprehended by him as a unified whole. So here is the baby seeing their reflection in the mirror and seeing it as a unified whole baby. When the sight of the other's image apprehended by him as a unified whole anticipates his sense that he lacks motor coordination. So the baby sees the image in the mirror and feels bad about themselves, feels that, oh my gosh, I don't have any of that. I lack motor coordination. I can't do anything and so forth. This image retroactively structuring his lack of motor coordination in images of fragmentation. So it's almost like the baby didn't realize how fragmented and messed up they were until they saw this other baby in the mirror. And then that other baby retroactively says, oh my gosh, yeah, I'm going to help you understand how you've always been the worst baby, the more fragmented one, the more degenerate one. So things go on and on, and then at the end of this paragraph, Lacan tries to summarize it a bit. 
the properly imaginary. Imaginary because it's dealing at the level of images, mirror images. That's how we get this notion of the imaginary. The properly imaginary nature of the ego's function in the subject. The ego is an imaginary construct. And here, the constitution of the ego's ideal ur-build, this is that specular image, that ideal version of the ego. It would be um, an ideal ego, is how we would talk about it. A specular image, an ideal ego. Not to be confused with an ego ideal, but an ideal ego. This ideal ego, as time goes on, it's not so much your reflection in the mirror anymore. It becomes people you look up to. It's the poster of the athlete that you had hanging on your wall as a kid. It's the celebrity that somebody once told you you remind them of. That becomes this ideal ur-build. That becomes your ideal ego. Someone who you think is better than you, has more fun than you, that you might be able to become someday. It's a reproduction of the mirror stage at the level of adult life.